Hello and welcome to She Stars It with Angelica Malin, the podcast that celebrates incredible, inspiring women who are at the top of their industries, from food to fashion, law to politics. This is a podcast about celebrating female entrepreneurship, power and potential, exploring what it really takes to be a trailblazer in today's world. I'm your host, entrepreneur and journalist Angelica Malin, and every week I'll be asking a new guest for their three career turning points and answering the question we've all wondered at some point, how does she start it? She Started It with Angelica Malin is kindly sponsored by Bloom and Wild. If you're like me and you love having fresh flowers around you while you're relaxing at home, but I hate having to carry them around with me all day, and who's ever home long enough to arrange a delivery anymore? Bloom and Wild have got us covered. They're the UK's top-rated online florist, and they deliver right to your letterbox. So you can get fresh buds ready to flower, they can last up to 10 days, and you don't even have to worry about being home for the delivery. They'll give you £10 off your first order with the code SHE. Straight and simple, S-H-E. They offer free next day delivery up to 10pm. They ship across the UK, France and Germany, so they've got you covered. So head on over to blueandwild.com, use the offer code SHE so they know I sent you, and treat yourself. Maxine Mawinney is a journalist and broadcaster from Belfast. Until 2017, Maxine was the UK's oldest female national newsreader. Maxine left the BBC in 2017 to launch a new career at the age of 60. For 20 years, she was a senior BBC News and current affairs anchor, covering stories from the Oklahoma bombing to the death of Princess Diana. Now she's launched her own global interview programme, The Moment. Thank you so much for joining me, Maxine. Oh, it's great to be here. That reads as such an interesting bio. Can you tell me a little bit about that in your own words? I think um, I've been really lucky. I've had a really fantastic career the first half of which was before the internet, social media and mobile phones, if anyone can imagine that. And the second half was after. So I come from a very humble background in Northern Ireland, very working class family, uh, always struggling really financially. Um, but my mum was, you know, a great support. I had two sisters and uh, I, I just always liked to write and I was really nosy. So journalism was a perfect job for me. Mm. And I'll come back to that, that bit of it later. But in the, the career itself, I've lived and worked in many places because of my job. So I was the news editor for Reuters for Asia for two years. We lived in Tokyo. Then I came back to Frankfurt after the fall of the Berlin Wall. It would have been better had it been Berlin, mm. I have to say. Um, and then I went to Washington, D.C. in 1992, and so did Bill Clinton. So I covered the Clinton administration. Mm. Uh, that was with GMTV. Came back to London in 1996. Started working at Radio 4 and World Service Television, and then the news channel began. Mm. And I was there ever since. The longest job I've had, actually. Mm. 20, almost 21 years. 20 years. It's an amazing length of time to be in one place. I, <laughs> I think, know. Especially with millennials and Gen Z, mm. uh, the tendency is to move around a lot. You know, a lot of uh, stats say that millennials will want to move every year if they're not promoted. Well, it's interesting because it's almost come full circle. When I started in journalism, if you didn't move every two years and then you went for a job interview, people would actually query why you'd stayed so long. Mm. Why haven't you moved on? Are you not ambitious? But you know, there were simpler times. There were more jobs available then. So it was easier to move around. What it, was it about the BBC that made you stay there all those years? Well, I mean, it's an interesting question because having been a foreign correspondent, you're on the road, you're doing all the big stories. You mentioned a few of them there. Um, I mean, 
Apart when I was in Washington, uh, the other big stories were O.J. Simpson, which people will remember, mm. the Oklahoma bomb, Waco, Texas, the siege there, uh, the first attempt uh, attack on the Twin Towers. When I was in Asia, I covered the assassination of Rajiv Gandhi, among mm. other things. So there were great stories. You were out there doing them in the field. Um, but when I came back to the U.K., my daughters were then uh, 16 and 13, so we needed to have a little bit more stability. So going into the studio was a, a great opportunity for me at that point. And then I suddenly realized that having, you know, said, oh, I will never be in the studio, I'm on the road. Actually, because of 24-hour news, you are covering all the stories during your shift, not just one, mm. not just the one that I would have been on. So for journalistically, it's a challenge. You're not just sitting there reading something because if, if anyone who watches 24-hour news or listens to 24-hour news on the radio, it's interview, 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 interview. So they're all live interviews and you're going from one topic to the next. So it's, it's, it's fantastic. I loved it. How did it compare to previously before you were a newsreader, the actual experience when you were an anchor? I think um, I, I didn't see really that much difference except I wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't standing in the rain. I wasn't standing in the cold. Mm. And... I was I was able to it, it's quite a powerful position to sit in that chair as a journalist because you are you, you really have to be on the ball it's all live my the shifts I would do were 5 hours long mm. live so you never knew what was going to happen you had to be on the ball you had to be across everything so for me I, I don't know. I mean, I love being a foreign correspondent, but actually being in the studio in a 24-hour situation mm. was just amazing. What kind of preparation would you have to do, kind of in actual <laughs> practice and also maybe mentally, before those kind of shifts? Well, first of all, um, you can't switch off, even if you're on holiday, because you couldn't go away for a week or two weeks and come back and have missed what had been said the previous week. So if you were interviewing a politician, you might not know what they had said earlier. So you've got, really got to be on top of everything. But I'm a news junkie, so it's fine. And then on the shift, you go in about three hours before, talk to the editor. They'd give you a few sheets of A4, very closely typed with all of the stories they were covering. Now, that could have been 40 or 50 things they were looking at. But there would be three or four of the main stories of the day and they would be the ones that you would really prep yourself for. Mm. People have this image that, you know, you have when you're the news anchor, you have teams of people getting you your papers, uh, all your briefing notes. No, there was me. Mm. We don't have that anymore. So, in fact, I never had it. So mm. uh, I prep myself, I brief myself, which I prefer anyway, because I know what I want. Mm. Um, and then... As the program progresses, you're constantly updating that mm. it, with the editorial team. Were there yeah. any interviews where you went in feeling totally unprepared for it? No, but I did. There was one day where I ended up, I can't remember what happened, but I was late for work and I'm never late. I'm always anal. I'm always in really early because I just like to be prepared. I'm a Virgo, <laughs> in case that makes any difference to anybody. Um, I uh, was late getting into work and therefore I went to make up. That's the other thing fabulous hair and makeup for 45 minutes but you take all your notes with you so I went to makeup and I was still on my laptop trying to get some briefing documents so what I actually did was I was ready for the top of the program and then in the interviews or the films I was actually then briefing myself on air it was very unnerving mm. very unnerving but the thing about 24-hour news is that anybody can pop up at any time in that interview chair 
from anywhere in the world. Mm. So you can't really be completely prepared for everything, but you've got to be ready for it. Mm. And as a journalist, I've never written down my questions. Mm. People ask, you know, do you have this list? No. Um, You never had any kind of list of questions really well? No. The only thing I would write down would be a couple of bullet points, maybe of maybe a statistic that you wanted to remember, I always wrote their name down in case you forgot it. You've no idea on live TV. You could. I, I once forgot my co-presenter's name, and we'd been presented for years. <laughs> so it's just that environment, isn't it's, it? It is, actually. Suddenly your mind goes blank. But what I do is one of the most important skills of interviewing and interviewing live is to listen. And if I don't listen to what my interviewee is saying, I don't know where my next question is going because it's from what they say. That's the direction of the interview, unless they've gone completely off piece like a politician and then you have to pull them back. Mm. But listening skills are really important. Do you think we've somewhat lost the art of listening? Oh, yes. Mm. Absolutely. Nobody talks anymore. Never mind. Listen. Yeah. Listening is really important. Mm. Um, It's true. No one talks either. No, no, (laughs) nobody talks to each other. They text, they, you know, Mm. WhatsApp, they email, but nobody actually talks. And if you if you get yourself into that environment where you everything's done in a written format, how do you then learn those skills of listening, which are really important and really important in the workplace, not just the workplace that I would have been in? Mm, yeah, mm-hmm. sort of, I think it's all technology. Yeah. Technology is to blame for so much of this. It's good as well, though. Yeah. It's been good. Good things. Yeah. <laughs> what was the experience like living through some of the really big news stories? So, for example, when Princess Diana passed away, what was it like actually kind of being part of that history in the making? It was um, it was a really strange night. So I was actually broadcasting on BBC World TV. So that's the one that people see in hotel rooms around the world because it was three months before the BBC News Channel or BBC News 24, as it was originally called, began. But she died in August. The News Channel began in November. So it was an interesting night. In, I sat down in my chair at about 5 to 1 in the morning because we were broadcasting into another time zone. And suddenly there was this little flash on the computer. It wasn't the internet. It was just on the computer saying uh, she'd been injured in a car crash in Paris. And if you can imagine, the BBC actually shut down after the late news. So there was myself and a producer sitting beside me, basically on a desk, a director in the gallery. And that was about it. That was it. Um, So I turned to my producer and I said, his name is Matt, and I said, I think we should just say that at the top, you know, after the music and before we go into our main story. And he said, yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. So that's what we do. So we're like 10 seconds to air and this is happening. And, you know, I I welcome the viewers from around the world and say, before we bring you our main story, we've got some breaking news. We're hearing that Diana, Princess of Wales, has been injured in a car crash in Paris. Now, that was all we knew, one line. And in my ear, my producer was saying, please don't stop talking. Just keep talking. Don't go away from the story because obviously he was seeing more stuff coming up. Yeah. I teach journalism and one of my journalism students said to me, how did you fill the time? Now, this sounds crazy, but there is, a, there is a method to this. I've been to the hairdressers and when you go to the hairdressers, you read Hello and OK and all of those magazines. And it's absolutely chocker block with Diana's Summer of Romance yeah. with Dodie. So I had read all this in the hairdressers. <laughs> so I'm thinking, well... I sort of know where she's been and what she's been doing. So, uh, and bearing in mind, this is the BBC. You have to be really careful what you say. Mm. So, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about. You know, she's been away most of the summer. She's due back to see the boys before they go to school. Blah 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 blah. And then little flashes kept coming up, and it was things like she has an 
a cut on her thigh. That's what we were told. She had a cut on her thigh. That went on for quite a while, the cut on the thigh, until we saw the pictures of the car crash. And we thought, she can't have a cut on her thigh. But just to reflect on the whole night, I, at the time, realised this was an enormous story, even before she was dead. I realised that I had a big responsibility um, on every word that came out of my mouth and the tone that I was using. And every 10 minutes or so, the director would say to me, "Um, can you welcome viewers in America? Can you welcome viewers in Australia? Because all the broadcasters were joining the BBC broadcast and taking our output because they thought with Diana, BBC. So that's what happened. And it took four hours. And this sounds incredible. It took four hours to get the video out of Paris. Now, if it was tonight, it'd be on Twitter in 20 seconds. Yeah, yeah. But it just shows you the, the... difficulties that there were at that time. We did get correspondence on the phone and we got, you know, um, people from newspapers reflecting royal correspondence, this sort of thing. We knew she was dead about half an hour before it was broadcast. Mm. And it was, oh, I'm still getting ghost pimples when I think about this because it was hardened newsroom of hardened hacks went absolutely silent. Mm. It was shocking. Um, I didn't really realise the enormity of it until I'd gone home, gone to sleep, because I broadcast for ten and a half hours. Yeah. And I went home, went to sleep, woke up in and on the sofa in my pyjamas. I'm watching as the story's unfolding. And it just suddenly hit me, just the enormity of it. Because I think with all stories, um, especially for news journalists, you go into a, um, a zone. It's, the story's not you. Mm. I'm between the story and the viewer. So you've got the information, me, and the viewer. And I'm just that conduit. And it's always been like that because I was trained in a very old-fashioned way as a journalist. Um, and it's just that sort of, that's who you are. You are not the story. Hmm. So it's it absolutely amazing. Oh, it was astonishing, actually. Yeah. yeah. The, it, I imagine that you kind of learn how to separate yourself from the story. Mm. You kind of wash it off at the end of the day. Mm. There's something like that and the magnitude of it. It's, <laughs> it's a lot harder to shake. I think for me, the, the worst stories for me, the other story that comes to mind is the Oklahoma bomb, which people may recall. And the, the big image of the Oklahoma bomb even if you Google it today, is a fireman coming out carrying a little tiny baby in his hand, in his arms, and because it was a childcare centre on the ground floor. And when you have children yourself, it, those were the stories that affected me because I, I could just feel for that mother or I, I would think about my own children. Um, so stories with children really emotionally affected me. But, but again, you couldn't let that show in your broadcasting. You had to separate yourself. You sort of go into um, almost like a blinkered zone. You want all the information and you want to get it out there. Mm. That's how it works. Is that a technique you were taught or is it something you just learn on the job? I think you learn it on the job very quickly. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely it's fascinating. And I think I think it's an amazing thing to live through those experiences and yeah. to see them firsthand. With Diana, how long was it from when the story first was announced to when you found out that she died? Well, as I say, we find out at about four o'clock-ish. So it was about four hours. Mm. Um, and then I think the announcement was about half an hour, 40 minutes. And in that time, were you just running the story about Diana or you were going back to other news stories? No. Oh, goodness, no. Yeah. Nobody, we, you couldn't leave it. When right. you get a story like that, you can't leave it. And if you think as a viewer, think about it if you were a viewer and you were watching, and I do it, I'm really guilty of this. If you're watching a story and they move to something else, I flick to the next channel because mm. I want to continue with that story. Yeah, yeah. And if you think of more recent stories that would have been running like that, you would have had the London Bridge attacks, for mm. instance. 
stories like that you don't leave them yeah you stay with them well, I, I, I remember we were on holiday in Portugal and my mum turned the, on the television mm. it must have been at one two in the morning mm. and it would have been you that we were watching but it I was very me. young it would have been you <laughs> absolutely crazy I know, crazy. I know well I've enjoyed talking to you so much that I've um, completely forgotten my format and we have okay. to come back to it we'll have to go back to the format <laughs> um, which is that I ask all of my guests for a couple of turning points in their careers mm. could you tell me a little bit about the first one that you chose well I think the first one was um, the obstacle of becoming a journalist journalist and my mum I, I told my mum I wanted to become a journalist and it was such an unusual thing for someone in Northern Ireland to do as a, as a woman um, because it was a very male dominated industry there at the time and my mum was going no you're going to be a primary school teacher I didn't want to be a primary school teacher uh, I said no no I want to be a journalist so there was a lot of obstruction including at mm. school um, they wanted me to be to go to uni and do um, chemistry and all this sort of stuff no 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 my primary my English teacher Mrs Robinson um, has to be credited with seeing me through that period she believed in me and she said you can do this I know you can do this mm. and she was right mm. and she did so that was the first one um, I think were you quite determined? Like, oh, yes. Did, you just knew, you knew your mind. Yeah. yeah. At yeah. what age did you know that that was what you wanted to do? I probably knew when I was about 16, actually. Yeah. Uh, I was very interested in news and current affairs. Uh, and bear in mind, I grew up during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. I was 12 when the Troubles started. So uh, my whole teenage years were against this backdrop of what was essentially a war in my own backyard. Yeah. So I was always very interested in what was happening and why it was happening um, and the explanation, and I, I just, and I loved writing, mm-hmm. um, and I actually became a newspaper reporter first of all mm-hmm. for about seven years because I really loved writing, um, and then I went to broadcasting, and that brings me to my second turning point because I joined the BBC, mm-hmm. and in Belfast, and the, on the first day, I go into this newsroom. It's smoky. It's men. The only women are the secretaries. I mean, it was just, when I look back now. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details pictures you can't believe it and uh, a guy came up to me and he said and who are you and what are you doing here and I said I'm the new reporter and honestly he looked at me and said who is this and he said "Mm, there's a very nice job for a girl emphasis in the video library so I thought okay day two gets worse same guy oh he didn't quite say you're still here but that's what he meant and he said uh don't be having any ambition. You've got a Northern Ireland accent. You're going nowhere. And I just, I was horrified. And even at that, I mean, 
it's a real pushback and it really does knock your confidence. But to be honest, I looked at him and I just thought, you have no idea what you're talking about. If I want to do this, I'm going to do it. Mm. You know, you just didn't let it knock you. No, it, it, in a way, it probably made me more determined. Mm. I thought, mm. I'm just going to show him. I think you just, if I was to psychoanalyze, I think <laughs> you just have that inner self-confidence, self-belief mm. that you knew what you wanted yeah. and you weren't going to be swayed by people. No. But it's amazing that that was the environment that you entered into because, you know, today if someone had said that, someone would have tweeted it, it would have gone viral, <laughs> he would have been sacked. But that was just the culture. It was the culture, it was the norm. Um, and I, I was lucky in a way, I mean, lucky is probably not the right word, given the, the background to the, the stories we were covering. But in, if you went into a local newsroom somewhere, you would normally be covering things like the local council and the flower shows and you know all the local news that's going on. And in those days, it, it wasn't very exciting news. But, but the training in BBC in Belfast was huge because of the fact that we were covering the troubles mm. every single day. Mm. So, so that's um, how you started with the BBC? Yeah. Mm. yeah. How did you make that transition from written journalism to broadcast? Now, this is interesting because um, the BBC was trawling around to get some new talent in and they'd invited uh, newspaper reporters whose writing that they really liked to come in. And on the first day, uh, the guy who was the editor at the time, John Conway, who's also a, a big mentor of mine, he said to me, um, you do know that these are two different jobs. Uh, written, written journalism and uh, broadcast journalism, they're two different jobs. And if you can't make the transition, it's not a failure. Mm. Because you've got to get, I was used to writing pages. And, you, and then you have to get it into what is, in effect, a minute and 15 seconds at three words per second for the whole story. And maybe a couple of people talking in the middle of that. So it's a real, I mean, it's a real skill to get down. I did struggle, uh, but then suddenly it clicked. Mm. And it's actually a really good skill to have. If you can make something really small, you can make it bigger. Yeah. But it's quite hard to make something really small. To minimise. And it's not just the the reduction of the story size, but mm. there's the whole physical side of it that you have to mm. be eloquent, you have to not stutter, you mm -hmm. can't appear too nervous and all that. Yeah. Did you have professional training? No. Nothing. Oh, God, no, there was no training in those days. No. I had, a, I had a mentor in the newsroom who was one of the senior male journalists who was lovely. He was like, sort of almost like the grandfather of the newsroom. He was very kind. He taught me how to move from newspaper writing to make television reports and radio. I was working in radio as well. And it was, it was that the structures were the, the things that people really struggled with. And he, he was great at, right, do it, do it. And they used to make us, there were two or three of us, um, it was me and two guys. And they used to make us do the lead story every night. It wasn't being broadcast, but we had to do it as well. Um, and then they would compare what we did with what went out on air with the, the, you know, the senior reporter. So it was a really good learning curve. Yeah, it was great. How have you seen the industry change for women? You were at the BBC for 20 years mm -hmm. and you've been involved in journalism for such a long time. Has it become much better for women? You'd like to think so, wouldn't you, really? Um, the industry, let's look at the industry itself first. It's changed enormously because of the advent of the internet mm. and social media and smartphones and faster ways of delivering material. So everybody's a journalist these days, you know, the citizen journalism thing. And that would take us into fake news, but we'll not go there for the moment. But I think that um, in terms of women, I mean, the whole way through the early stages of my career, I was acutely aware of having to not just be good, but to be better than everybody else. Mm. And it's not that somebody was on my back or anything, because I, I had was given the most amazing jobs, and when I applied for them and got them, with the hand of them. But I, 
there was always that feeling that you had to be better than the male correspondent. You just had to do better. You had to prove, constantly prove yourself. I think that's changed a lot now because more women are, there are many more women in the field. There are, look at this fantastic correspondents who are out there uh, from all companies and all over the world doing fantastic stuff. So it has changed and it's much more acceptable now. It, it's not, it's the norm rather than mm. the oddity. Mm. There are things that still haven't changed, so equality, pay equality. Mm. Um, still, in some companies, gender quotas, you know. And also, I think the perception of women on TV is really difficult still. Um, it tends to be the older male, the younger woman. Right. Now, when I left, you said at the beginning, I was the oldest female newsreader mm. in the UK. I was when I left at the age of 60. You know, is that a badge you want to carry? No, it shouldn't have been really anything. People write about it all the time, and it really, it really shouldn't have been anything to write about. You don't say, you know, he's the oldest man on TV. Mm. So in a way, it's still a bit of an oddity to have that. I could have stayed. Mm. It was my choice to leave. The BBC, in fact, asked me to remain. Mm. And I could have probably stayed for maybe another 10 years. Who knows? Maybe, mm. I don't know. But I'm, I'm, I'm surmising. Mm. But I, for me, it was time to move on. Do, do you think that um, people make such a, a big deal out of it, for want of a better phrase, because you because we don't see that many um, older mm. newsreaders and like yeah. there is a certain age, there's an ageism involved in this kind of industry? Yeah, there is. I think it's changing, though. Um, and I think, uh, you see, my, my viewpoint right back from what I was that young journalist in that BBC newsroom years ago, my viewpoint has always been it doesn't matter whether you're male or female. If you can do the job, you get the job. Mm. And you get paid the same mm. for the job. And it, I think it's the fact that that is taking a long time to happen is a reflection on society, not just media organisations. Yeah. Well, you've been quite open in the past about mm. not being paid, uh, being underpaid compared mm. to male Colleagues, what did you do about that? How did you handle it? Oh, you bring it up and it's sort of, oh, well, we'll have to have a look at that one, you know. And that's that? Yeah. I mean, I think had I stayed longer, I probably would have just really kicked up a huge fuss. Uh, I mean, I was part of the group anyway. But um, I, this doesn't, this is not recent. This goes back to the beginning of my career. In every stage in my career, I know that I've been paid less than somebody doing exactly, and I mean exactly the same job. Now, what I don't know is have I been paid more than a man for doing that job at any point in time? I don't know that. Mm. But it's much more transparent now. And I, I think it's a mindset. It's a, it's a societal mindset about women are worth less. We're not. Mm. In many cases, we're worth more. I think we're told quite a lot of half-truths about the gender pay gap. Like people say, oh, women are less likely to come forward and ask for a promotion or they're not uh, as likely to negotiate their salary. And I, I don't know that I always believe that. I think sometimes that's just a way of fobbing off that the companies themselves aren't changing. It's slightly um, creating a bit of a culture where it's, well, it's women's fault for not asking. Oh, well, I was going to say that. that. Why, why should a woman have to ask? No, exactly. Why should the company not be treating that in female employee equal? Mm. No, I don't mind people getting paid more for doing different things. That's mm. fine. Mm. But if, if you're doing exactly the same job, it shouldn't matter. I agree. <laughs> um, so talk to me about your third turning point, which was leaving the BBC. Yeah. So um, this was a decision which shocked a lot of people. And a lot of people said to me, you've left the best job in the world. How can you do that? So I've been a journalist for 40 years. This all happened in the one year. I've been a journalist for 40 years, my anniversary. I... Uh, I'd been at the BBC for just over 20 years and I was 60 
all in the same year. So I just thought, if I'm going to do something else, rather than read the news for the next 10 years, I need to do it now. Mm. This is when I need to do it. I need to reestablish myself. I need to do something new. But using the skills, I mean, that's a whole lifetime of skills, Mm. which I thought were valuable and then wasn't quite sure would they be valuable anywhere else. But it turns out they are. Um, So I did. I I decided to leave. It it took about the period of leaving was about six months because I took voluntary redundancy. And on the day I left, I was really happy. And I was really, after I'd left and wasn't having to go in for the next shift pattern, I suddenly thought I don't have to listen to the news like 24-7 anymore. I can actually dip in and dip out, which has been quite nice. And I hadn't realized quite how stressful that was, constantly having to be on. And then I thought there'll be a big story and I'm going to be really regretting it. So the big story happened to be London Bridge. Yeah. And I sat up and I was watching it till like three in the morning and my husband was away on a business trip. So I was alone and I was crying watching these pictures. Tears were coming down because I was thinking about my own children, my friends' children, my nieces and nephews who could have been in there. And um, I went to bed and I got up and I thought, I watched that as a viewer. Mm-hmm. Although I could see the panic in the newsreader's eyes. Really? Because you can know that there's just chaos going on behind. Yeah. And they're holding it together really well. But when you've done the job, you you know what's going on in their ear. Does any part of you, when you watch the news now, feel a twinge where you wish you were back in the newsroom? No. It's just a chapter. Do you know, I never thought I would say that, ever. Mm. But no. Mm. I think I've done news. Mm. I think 40 years of news is yeah. It's a lot, but it's also, I suppose, a bit of an identity. And then I found when I've shifted or changed my career a little bit that I yeah. have to think, who am I now? And I don't have this thing to define me anymore. And you have to slightly just take a moment to pause and think about that. I, I can understand that, but I think that I'm not sure I've always identified myself with my job. Yeah. Because um, I'm a mother. Mm. I'm now a grandmother as well. Yeah, so thank you. So... There are other things going on in my life. Mm. I'm one of these people also, I think, who once I make a decision, like I made that decision when I was 16, Yeah, that's it for me. Stuck with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm there. And then know. tell me about your project at the moment. Well, it's been really exciting. I mean, don't get me wrong, it was scary to do it. And um, I, because I had that six-month transition period, you know, I was like, looking at what I would want to do. So I joined the senior faculty of the Karolinska Institute University Hospital. That slips off the tongue, doesn't it? (laughs) I run the communications course for doctors. So I go to Stockholm four times a year. And I absolutely love it. Mm. So it's taking the skills, my interviewing skills, my performance skills, my professional skills, and showing these doctors how to communicate. They love it. I love it. It's a win-win, that one. I started uh, my own programme, called The Moment with Maxine Mowinney. Uh, I like alliteration. And the idea was it was 15 minutes um, interviews, one-to-one interviews, which are on my YouTube channel. Now, for me, it it was just lovely because news interviews are three minutes. This was 15 minutes to talk to someone. Which for you is just oh, a, it's like a documentary. <laughs> and um, I, was, I was in control of who I, who I invited on and what the programme format and everything was. So it's a really lovely um, thing to do. And it's been interesting, the response to it as well. So we started off really slowly, a little slow burn. And I get the numbers of very famous people who have actually asked, can they come on, please? Yeah. So we're, we'll start recording again soon and yes. we'll have some nice people on there. That's fantastic. I, um, I, I do a lot of uh, speaking, 
particularly about women's issues, keynote speaking on that. I'm very passionate about that. I did a lot of careers speaking as well, for especially for girls. Um, I, I love it because you can see the change in attitude. They, girls now, young girls now, particularly those maybe in sixth form, looking at where they're going to go, they're not afraid. The world is their oyster. They want it. They'll go for it. And it's such a great attitude for women to have, I think. Mm. They're much stronger than I was. And... Um, of course, they're going into a different world as well, aren't they? I'm writing. Um, I'm doing all sorts of stuff. I think the nice thing is that you're now free to do all those different kind of multi-hyphen mm. things mm. where you're you're not in just one newsroom. You're kind of free to do so many yeah, things. Yeah, I think I've become one of these modern people with a portfolio career. <laughs> yeah, you have. You've become a millennial. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think you'll always work? I probably will, actually, because I've never not worked. I've worked since I was 18. I enjoy working. I, I like the creative side of what I do. Um, if my writing uh, develops and I stop procrastinating and doing things like the ironing instead of writing another chapter, that's what I'd really like to do. Mm. And it's, it's sort of full circle. It takes me back. Because I was a writer to begin yeah. with, you know, I sort of fell into broadcasting. Yeah. If, if you were to give advice to aspiring broadcast journalists, mm. and young people, mm. um, what tips would you give for getting into the industry and succeeding in it? I think um, today it's different. It's very different. Um, there are lots of media courses now. All sorts of things you can do. That's great. If you've got a specialist subject, it's great. So you might have an area that you have an expertise in. If you have um, so special subjects are good, but also maybe a language or two, very useful. Mm. I don't have any. I speak, I speak French, but only really enough to order a meal. Um, and also, um, you need as many technical skills as possible these days. So when I went out in probably one of my first jobs as a TV journalist, I had a camera crew with a sign man, electrician, a lighting engineer, a PA. I mean, we, we needed a bus, really, to move us around. Today, it's you and your iPhone. Mm. So you need as many skills as you can get, sort of um, online editing, all sorts of stuff. The other thing I would really recommend is a body of work. Oh, people say, but I haven't got a job. How do I get a body of work? Blogging, mm. commenting, having your own YouTube channel, or vlogging the lot. Have Show that you're interested. Show that you're aware. Show that you've put in the hard work. And don't just do it three weeks before you go for the interview somewhere. Yeah. Have that body of work from the moment you decide. I suppose in a way a there's kind of no excuse now because we can all create no. stuff on our iPhones, yeah. upload it. You can do Instagram videos. Yeah. There's just... no excuse. There's one caveat, though. Be very, very careful because you have to think about yourself in 10 years' time. If you want to be a journalist or or in some form of media, where would you want to be in 10 years' time? Do you want to be serious? Do you want to be celebrity? Do you want to be, you know, whatever? And just be careful what you post now that it doesn't reflect on you in 10 years' time because you want that body of work has to be you and what you want to be yeah. and, and your, I suppose, what you're really, really craving. As an interviewer myself, I feel like I have to ask. You talked about uh, the importance of listening, but do you have any other tips for how you conduct a really great interview? You have to prep. You definitely prep. Um, I always think of an interview as what do I want at the end of it? What If I was watching this interview, would this be a whole interview? Or would it be so fragmented that the viewer would end up with what we used to call puzzle news? So there was more puzzling than answering any questions. So I always think about what is I want from this interview? Why are we interviewing this person? What do I want from it at the end of it? And then work backwards from Mm. that. 
Um, do you know, it's, it's funny you asking me those questions because I, I sort of do it automatically. Um, Interviewing. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to my mum recently and she was talking about um, when she was a child. I was absolutely fascinated. So I was asking her all these questions and she said, stop. I said, what? She said, you're interviewing me. I said, oh, no. <laughs> I do find after I do a day of podcasting that I have conversations with my friends and they're very kind of careful. And I'm like, oh, wait, I'm, I'm back into the real world. Yeah. That adjustment. Yeah, exactly. It's so, so funny. Well, Maxine, you've been the most fantastic guest. Thank you so much. If people would like to find out more about you and to follow you online, where should they go? Well, I'm on Twitter at Maxine Mawinney. I have a website, MaxineMawinney.com. There's an H in Mawinney. Don't forget that. And just before we go, I just want to say one thing. I have a two-year-old granddaughter. Willow, who's divine, of course. I would actually like her to grow up into a world, no matter what she wants to do, that she can do it, that she isn't penalised for being a girl. And it's all there for her if she, if she wants it. Mm. And that would be really great. I agree. Let's do that for Willow. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to She Starst It with Angelica Malin. If you've enjoyed this episode, then don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. And you can follow me on Twitter at Jelly Malin.